Well, thank you. It's very nice to be here. It was a very nice reception. Uh, the frontier is my field. I write about the frontier wherever it happens to be. And so consequently, I feel very much at home here. For all of you are dealing with the frontier. The frontier in one way or another. Because the frontier doesn't exist only geographically. It exists in all the sciences everywhere. It is that point beyond which man hasn't been and beyond which he wishes to go. We in America formed much of our character on the frontier. Many of our presidents lived on the frontier. Few people realize that George Washington spent at least 10 years of his life on the frontier, both in the Army and as a surveyor. Zachary Taylor, Andrew Jackson, many others developed their lives on the frontier. It has colored all of our lives in every way. It's usually believed that the people who came west with wagon trains were poor people. This is not true. To come west with a wagon train, you had to have money. You had to have money to supply yourself, to buy the train, to buy the, to buy the wagon, to buy the oxen. It was not cheap at all. The people who come west, came west, did not come because they were poor and looking for something they didn't, didn't have. These people had good businesses, or they had good farms, but they came west because they wanted to see what lay beyond the horizon. That, too, is what you find here in this room. These people, these honorees that you have met, are all people who are looking beyond the horizon to see what lies out there. I think that we today stand on the threshold of the greatest period in all the world's history. I read history every day of my life. I don't mean only the history of the West, but the history of the entire world. I take all of it as my province. I'm fascinated by what man has done, the achievements he's had, the setbacks he's had, and they have been many. This is beyond doubt the best time in the world in which to have lived, in spite of the atomic bomb and all of those things. But I think that everything up to this point has been preliminary. Everything up to now has been preliminary to what is now going to happen. We are moving out into space, challenging space, going on to other worlds, going on to other, other planets. How far we will go, no man knows or even wishes to know because there is no horizon. There is no frontier out there that ends. It's an endless frontier that lays there, lies there for us always. It's thrilling and exciting to live, to see these people venturing out there, making the first feeble stabs into that vast, vast unknown because it is unknown. They have no idea of what lies out there. We speculate, we plan, we think, we talk, we test, we examine, we study, but still we don't know. It's all a great guessing game, but the most marvelous guessing game in the world. And some of the men who are here and some of the people who are here are participating in that and will participate in the future, as many of you will. But it's the greatest experience that anybody could possibly have. We, in, forming, in, in going west, formed a type of character that was different. As long as people remained on the eastern seaboard, they to some extent relied upon Europe. They looked back to Europe, they had ships coming over from Europe bringing them more materials. But once they crossed the Appalachians, once they get out there into that vast unknown country that lay, lay west, it was all new. We became what is one of our most famous and best known characteristics a problem-solving people because they had to solve the problems right on the spot.
You couldn't call a plumber. You couldn't call a man to repair your wagon. You had to do it yourself. You couldn't call a doctor. You had to do it yourself if there didn't happen to be one on the wagon train. Wherever you were, it was a do-it-yourself sort of life. And men got to the point where they could, they could fix it. They could do. They could make anything work. As they started west, it was a whole new experience. You see, the first pioneering had been done in the east. It had been done in the forests, uh, close to the Atlantic seaboard or in the dense forests. They would go out into the forest, clear a space, build a cabin, burn some of the wood they'd cut down, plow between the stumps at first, and make a farm. They learned over a couple of hundred years how to pioneer in that way. Then suddenly they came to a new land, a wide open grassy land that went on for miles and miles and miles. And they didn't know how to pioneer. It stopped them for a while, but not for long, because they found out how to build sod houses, they found out how to get along, and they moved on west. I have read many diaries of the people who crossed the plains. Not a few of the diaries, but I've read hundreds of them. When you read one or two, you don't get the pattern, but when you begin to read many, you do. You see these people start out, in spite of their courage and everything, they were starting out in, in fear and trembling, because it was a new world. They didn't know what was going to happen. Then they began to move out. They solved problems. They took their wagons up long, muddy hills. It took them all day long to get just two or three wagons up. It was a very hard process. Twelve miles a day was, was a good average. Sometimes you only made a mile. Occasionally, if you had horses or mules, you made as much as 25 or 28, but that was rare. It was a very difficult thing, but they began to solve these problems. And as they solved them, their whole psychology began to change. They began to figure, well, this isn't so tough. I can do it. And from that came the feeling, I can do anything. And that has been a great part of the spirit of America. We've always had that feeling that we could do anything. And to a great extent, we've done it in many ways. And I think we'll do it more as we go on. Earlier, there was some talk about proton stability and how there was a dogma about this. I am an enemy of dogma wherever it happens to be. At the risk of being dogmatic, I don't believe in dogma. <laughs> But, but anyway, uh, in my books, aside, uh, my first idea in writing a book is to tell a good story. I want to entertain you, the reading public. I want you to take one of my books and turn the pages and not be able to put it down. I try to write to interest you, to excite you. But necessarily, a man says what he thinks, what he feels. A good deal of what is in himself comes out, whether he wants to or not. I believe anybody who deliberately tries to sell a bill of goods and a novel or anything of the kind is making a terrible mistake because whatever he has to say will come out anyway. And I have things to say, and one of them is that I'm an enemy of dogma. In my latest book, Jubal Sackett, I attack three very minor things, uh, but science and other people, uh, the people of the academies, the people of the critics, get to accepting certain things as fact. I believe we should preface everything we know by saying, as so far as we know. This is the truth so far as we know. Because we don't know the truth, we haven't reached it yet, we're striving for it, we want to have it, and uh, we're going to get close to it. But we don't have it yet. One of the things that was said was that all the mammoths died out 6,000 B.C. Now, I don't know exactly why that arbitrary date was chosen, I don't know why all of them died at the same time, if they did. I don't know why a few couldn't have lingered after that. 
As a matter of fact, in doing my research among American Indians and among the literature about American Indians, I have found at least eight tribes who had records of killing the, the mammoth. There is a record of the Ponca Indians. Uh, I mention it in my book, Jubal Sackett, in the notes to it. There's a record of the Ponca Indians making a, their big hunt. Uh, they were people who lived in the Yankton, South Dakota area. And each year, they would migrate out from there to the, to the Rocky Mountains, hunting all the way. They would hunt down the eastern slope of the Rockies until they got to about where Pikes Peak is. And then they would come back across the plains. By the time they got back to their home, they had enough meat to last them the, the following winter. Near Niobrara, Nebraska, they killed a mammoth. They tell about it, describe it. They have a name for it. Its name was Pasnuta which means long nose in their language. Other tribes uh, have the same story. David Thompson, a great Canadian explorer, of, uh, incidentally, we know too little about what happened in Canada. Canada had some great explorers, and almost all of them are unknown here except for Mackenzie. And David Thompson was one of them. He was out in Oregon and Washington, Idaho, uh, long before Lewis and Clark made it. And when he was exploring out there, he was being guided across the mountains, and they found some gigantic tracks in the snow, and the Indians told him it was made by a mammoth, or an animal they described that could only have been the mammoth. But according to science, according to the scholars, they all died out in 6000 B.C. I, uh, as I say, I don't believe it. Another thing, along the eastern, the western slope, I should say, of the Appalachian Mountains, they have found about 20 Roman coins. Now, one very brilliant character, who he was, I don't remember, and I'm, thank, uh, I'm thankful that I don't, because I hate to despise anybody by name. Anybody by name, I'd rather despise them anonymously. But anyway, he said that these were somebody's lost coin collection. Well, who would be carrying a coin collection in the late 1600s in Tennessee? I have no idea. But um, in those days, you carried only ammunition and salt. That was all. But they found those Roman coins there, and obviously somebody dropped them. And obviously somebody carried them there, and it probably was a Roman. There is one school of thought that believes the, Carth believe the Carthaginians were coming over here and mining copper up north of Lake Superior. I don't know whether that's true or not, but I like to put these things in my books. I like to challenge the, the skeptics. I like to say, well, what if, supposing it did happen? I don't say these things are true. My stories uh, are usually based on fact. But I bring up a lot of these things that have been lost to history. They're sidetracked, that are put aside because they can't be proved or demonstrated. We don't know who the first people were who came west. We don't know. Uh, Jubal Sackett, in my story, goes west before any known Anglo-Saxon white man had made the trip. Because I've often dreamed myself of being that first man who might have crossed the plains. So I had Jubal do it. But we know that somebody did cross. We found the records, I mean, evidences that they left. Somebody was out there. Who it was, we don't know. The remains of a, a monk were found in a cave in the Badlands. Uh, he got out there sometime before any white man was supposed to be in the area. When LaSalle was coming down the Mississippi River, everybody has read about that in school. But you don't read about the fact that at the mouth of the Ohio River, he met several boatloads of, of Carolina adventurers. Who are these people? Where did they go? What happened to them? I try to deal with some of those things in my stories. I try to speculate on what did happen to these people. Where did they go? What did they see? 
There's so much of history that remains untold, and I like the telling of it. There's something I want to say, too, before I end this. We've heard a lot of talk about computers, and we've had it said that the human mind was the greatest of all computers. It is without doubt. And if we spent as much time trying to understand exactly how the human mind works, we wouldn't need any computers at all, except for the blue-collar work, you might say, of, of research and study. They can do a lot of routine work that can free a mind for real thinking. But it takes a human mind to do the real thinking. We don't know how powerful or how great the human mind is. In, in Switzerland in the 1880s, a man hypnotized a girl who was known at the time as Helen Smith. It wasn't her name. While she was hypnotized, she told about uh, in a reincarnation, in another life, another reincarnation, she had lived on Mars. She described the life there, the people, the houses, everything in great detail. Until somebody asked her a very pertinent question, what's the language? Well, she had no answer for that. But, and this is a very interesting thing, a few hours later, hypnotized again, she came forward with an entire language for those people. An entire language, understand. Any word you mentioned, she had a Martian word for it. The tip-off of the whole thing was, French was her native language, and every one of the words she had for Martian was a substitute for a French word. But the thing is, this had all happened in her subconscious mind in a matter of hours, perhaps in a matter of minutes. We don't know how long it took, but the human mind had done that. Some years ago, down in the South, there was a, a black man who was an imbecile, and uh, he was very famous at the time, and uh, he could barely feed himself and dress himself, but he could play any piece he ever heard on the piano. If he heard it once, he could play it. Now, that was considered a kind of a phenomenon. I don't believe it is. I believe what he was doing is within the grasp of anybody in this room. The thing was, in this poor man's fogged mind, there was only one ray of light that came through, and that was his love of music. So he listened to music, he heard music, and he reproduced the music. Nobody had ever told him that was impossible. No one had ever told him he couldn't do it, so he did it. I believe much of our teaching is all wrong. I believe we've got to find new methods of teaching, new methods that can move faster, new methods that can approach the mind in a different way. I think the human mind has a tremendous grasp. Uh, in doing my research for The Walking Drum and the book that's going to follow it, I did a lot of research into the uh, great Arab Renaissance in the period of the 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th centuries. When the the Arab world was leading the, the intellectual world wherever it happened to be. The largest library in the world at the time was in Cordoba, Spain, was 400,000 volumes. There were 70 public libraries in town, many private libraries. The largest library in Christian Europe at that time was 14 volumes. These people were doing enormous research, enormous study. They had men copying books from every language in Arabic. But that isn't what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you a very interesting thing. The Arab writers did not, as a rule, write their books down. They composed them in their brain. When the time came to copy them down, they would hire a man or go to a man who did that as a profession. And he was considered quite an important literary figure. And they would dictate the book verbatim to this man. 
Some of these Arabic writers, or writers who wrote in the Arabic language, because many of them were Persians or Central Asians or various things, um, could dictate as many as 40 or 50 books right off the cuff. They had fabulous memories. Some of us have great memories, but we don't rely on them enough. We can look up, the, look up things in an encyclopedia. We can take a book off the shelf of the library. We can call somebody up and get an answer to our problems, so we don't try. But if you try to remember, you can. And you can develop your memory in a fantastic way. Uh, people who know me know that I can deal with several thousand years of history. I remember it very well. And uh, my memory isn't as good as my father's was, however. But that is within the grasp of all of us. In closing, I want to say just one thing that I think is extremely important. And that is that the one thing we need more than anything else in this world is perspective. We live in a world where everything is now. Uh, we get the news every day from the newspapers, from radio, from television. It's given to us every hour, on the hour, even by the minute. So we live in, in, in a world of immediacy. We live in a world of now. What we need is perspective. We need people who can take the long view, who can see what history has done, what history is doing, what is happening to us. And we need that very, very seriously. We also need men in Congress who, who have perspective, who do not look at the close thing, at the narrow view, do not see the immediate thing. Uh, the greatest difficulty is we're all contemplating our navels instead of going out and really uh, taking the long view and learning. I want to say that this is, I've been here several times, these meetings. I look forward to every one of them. I look forward to the people I meet here. I look forward to the students I meet. I regard it as a great honor and a great pleasure, and I'm very glad that I can be here today, and thank you very much.